0: Take out your Bible if you will and open it to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 9 through 20 this morning. And of course, last week we stepped out of our study of the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, and Dave Ramsey was was with us. I hope you were here for that. I, I loved listening to his story. His gospel story, his life change it was so incredible to hear what God had done in his life and then his exhortation for us. I, was so thrilled that uh, our family could get to hear his exhortation from us to use our own stories, what God's done in our lives, where we live, work, and play, with whoever God brings into our lives, to share our story as a tool, a resource for God's kingdom. It was great to have him here. Today, we're picking back up to where I was two weeks ago in this first chapter of, of Revelation. And, and you know when we opened it two weeks ago, if, if you were here, if you watched online, or if you got to listen to it, we saw this incredible description of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus. This whole book is about Jesus Christ and all that he has done and all that he is and all that he will do in the end. That's the book of Revelation. It's not just about the end things. It's about Christ. And we saw this summary, this opening of Christ and what he, what he is to you and I. He was the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. He solved our greatest problem, our sin. He resolved it on the cross and he is our greatest hope for it. He is coming again. And today, as we open to the next section, that was fourth through eight, as we open to verse nine and following, it's Jesus part two. That's, that's what this is. It's an encore performance of Jesus and his absolute authority and power over all the earth. His authority, his power, his sovereign control, his divinity, it's a heavenly image, a glorious picture of his heavenly image and all that it means for, for you and me. You know those moments in life when, when you're facing something, you're kind of at a bit of a crossroads and, and you're trying to make a decision, a big decision. And you're not sure which way to go. Maybe it's two goods, and it's like there's pros and cons to each. And you've been analyzing it, over analyzing it. It's taken too long. You just, oh, I just can't make the move. Maybe you're in one of those moments right now. You're a you're a high school student, a junior, senior, maybe, and you're thinking about college. And it's just like I don't know where to go, what to do, or College, or should I take a year and go to work or go overseas or this college or that college. There's so many pros and cons and your parents are right in the middle of it with you and there's financial concerns and, and, and education thoughts. What do I want to study? And, and how far from home do I want to be? Where are my friends going? There's all these things in your head. It's just hard to take the next step or make that decision. Or, or maybe you're, you've been thinking for a long time about a career change. And and, and maybe there's even an opportunity right in front of you. And it's like, I'm comfortable where I am, but it's not totally satisfying. And I wonder if that opportunity will be. It looks good, but there's a bunch of unknowns around it. I don't know those people or that culture. And I'm just not sure. Wanted to for a long time, but is this it? I, I don't know if I should or... Maybe it's difficult to find work for you right now, difficult to find a job. And you're just like, I, I've exhausted all my resources. I don't know where to turn next. What's in front of me? You've been there? It, it's, it's, I've certainly been there. And, and then like, I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. I've gone to God's word. I've sought counsel. And it, I just can't get a sense of what God is saying to me, where God is directing me. It's like, God, if I could just this once hear your voice audibly, like, could I hear it and know that it is you? And, and I'll do whatever. You start negotiating with God, you tell me this, and I'll, I'll serve food for a month. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Africa this year. Like, just, tell, you know, just, can I hear your voice? Or have you ever been in, in that place where you've got some questions about the faith, and some doubts even, you're just like, some things make total sense. And some things you're just not sure, like, that's not very tangible. you know. I, if I could just see you, Christ, for myself, kind of like the disciple Thomas who had spent three years with him, still, if I could just see you for a moment, a few questions, if I, if I could see the holes in your hands and the holes in your feet, then I would know this is all real. Could just see you. I'll take you to dinner. Just a few minutes. A few questions. Jay Alexander's. I'll buy whatever. I, can we just? Ever been there? Maybe I should ask. How often have we been there? We've all been there, haven't we? And when we're there, it's difficult to decide. And that's why I'm so excited about this passage. I'm so excited about you being here this morning. The, the few and the faithful to come in this morning so excited to to get to teach what God says here because it's in this passage that we will hear his voice. In this unique passage, this glorious passage, this remarkable passage about Christ, we will hear his voice loud and clear and we will see him. We will see him in ways that declare his character and his essence in ways that we may not have ever read or fully understood before. So let's read it together and then we'll walk through it together. If you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. This is God's Word for us this morning. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May it benefit us. Today, you can take your seat. Now, I'm going to make a few comments here on the front end. We're going to look at this passage in two parts, okay? We're going to look at what John saw. That is the vision that he saw and what John heard. That is the voice of Jesus Christ. Those two parts and there'll be some lessons for us in that along the way. First, I want to just set the context a bit. We, remember that John is writing to the church in Asia. Seven churches in Asia Minor who are suffering under the intense persecution of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And John opens this letter... The vision he sees, he opens his comments with a word of understanding to them. That is verse 9. I am a fellow partaker. I am a brother. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in this together. You are not alone. I I am a brother, a partaker in persecution, in suffering, is what the word tribulation means there. I am a long sufferer with you. And in the kingdom, I'm with you in the kingdom. And I'm with you, I'm steadfast, I'm patient, I persevere alongside. You you church are not alone. You're not alone with you in it. And then then he says this, he says, I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, here that means this. It means John is about to see the supernatural vision. And it's not normal, not at all normal. Very rare that we see something like this in in the scripture. It's not in it his normal sense that he can see supernatural content. So God carries him out, almost like an out-of-body out of experience, so that he can declare and present this supernatural content about Jesus Christ in a way that the church has never known before. That's what it means. I was in the Spirit, in the Spirit of God, in a very unique way to receive the vision. And of course, in the Spirit, he does receive this vision. And the first thing that happens is that he hears a voice. A voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, have you ever heard a trumpet break the silence? Have you ever heard this sound? Maybe it's standing for the National Anthem, and the anthem is played by a trumpeter. A trumpet breaks the silence. Or maybe you've been to some sort of show or live performance, and the first note is the note of a trumpet. It's a bit startling, isn't it? It demands your attention. And that's what's true here. When John hears this voice, it has his full attention. It's loud and it's clear. And it's a clarion call to John to act right down what you're about to see. Send it to the seven churches. Okay, now the two parts. That's the few comments. Here's the two parts, what John saw and what John heard. And, I, and I'm gonna walk us through this phrase by phrase. And I'm gonna do it, make some observations along, way, the, along the way because we To understand who Jesus is and to see him with clarity in this text, we have to know what's underneath what John describes. We have to understand what John says in a way that it symbolizes something more. This is the uniqueness of the prophecy and the vision of Revelation. So we're going to walk through it phrase by phrase so that we can fully understand it. Here we go. Verse 12, the vision. Here's where it starts. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, remember the book of Revelation that uh, Revelation is filled with these symbols, some of them more difficult to understand, but all given to us so that we might understand more. They're not given to hide the truth, they're given to us to reveal the truth. So here is the first symbol. And the seven lampstands is actually defined in this text for us. Not always the case, but it is here. So look down in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, we'll see that in a minute, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, are the seven churches. Of course, referring to the seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor, and referring to the whole church, then and now. That's the number seven. It also is symbolic and has deep meaning. It's the number of perfection, completion, fullness. This is Jesus unveiling to us the whole church, not just these seven, okay? symbolic meaning of the lampstands. We got it in verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man, like a son of man. Now, who is one that is like a son of man? That's not fully a man, but like a son of man. Who is that describing? Of course we know who that's describing. It's describing Jesus 81 times in the gospels. This title, the son of man is used for Jesus Christ just in the gospels alone. It's Jesus' favorite title. It's what he calls himself. And the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, is important here because it demonstrates not only his humanity like a Son of Man, but also his divinity. I saw one in the middle of the church, right at the epicenter of the church. By the way, quick aside, Jesus is right in the center of our gathering right now. He's here. If you want to say something to him, you can. We just did. We just prayed. He's here. He's right in the middle of the church, right in the middle of the lampstands. He is the Son of Man. I saw one like the Son of Man, and here's where it gets fun. Clothed in a robe and girded with a golden sash. Very specific detail by John. This is the attire of the Old Testament priest, the high priest. It's what the Old Testament priest wore, and no one else wore it. Everybody else wore a sash around their waist. This is a sash around the chest. It's a royal robe. This is the high priest who served, of course, in the Old Testament before Christ. He, he served as the great mediator, as the mediator between the sinfulness of man and the forgiveness of God. And how did he mediate that between man and God? Well, he did it with animal sacrifice, Right? lamb would go on the altars, blood spilled, that would cover the sins of the nation for a week, and then they'd come back and do it again. That's the mediation of the great high priest, or the high priest in Israel. But this here is actually describing the great high priest, the mediator between our sin and his father once and for all, the lamb of God who was slain for our sins. The great priest and shepherd demonstrates and reflects it's symbolic of his grace and his love toward his sheep. So, oh, son of man, he was clothed and girded with a golden sash and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. Uh, this is the white that comes with age. We have... Um, one white-haired couple at our South Nash- in our South Nashville core group. There's about 60 adults. There's one white-haired couple. And when they speak, everyone listens. Why? The wisdom of age. There's a few white hairs in here. I won't call you out, but you have wisdom for us. And of course, Jesus is the ancient of days. His wisdom is endless, it's ageless. That's what John is describing here in his vision. His hair was white, his head was white, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Eyes that pierce with clarity to the depth of the soul. Eyes that see all and know all, that see reality and all that is within it that burn right through any fluff that surrounds us or any pretense that we put up. These are the omniscient eyes of Jesus Christ. His feet were like burnished bronze. When it had been made to glow in a furnace, highly refined, it's probably not bronze here, likely gold or silver. The word in Greek means Highly refined, pure, without blemish, no weakness in it, and symbolizing at the base of this image the strength and the stability of Jesus Christ. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, many waters coming together as one. Think Niagara Falls. 750 gallons of water, 750,000 gallons of water, Per second coming over those falls. Falls at a rate of 32 feet per second. And at the base of the falls, it falls and hits the base with 3,000 tons of force. Those waters. It's the sound of Jesus Christ's voice. It's a thundering, booming voice. I can't even do it right. It's incredible, voice. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We saw earlier that this is symbolic of the seven angels of the seven churches. Not sure exactly what that means. Angel is the word for messenger. It could be an angel that's divinely directed to watch over each of these churches. It could be the church leader that God, Jesus Christ, holds in his right hand. It could be the church themselves. What we do know about this phrase, and this is all we need to know, is that it represents his relationship to the church. Jesus Christ holds the church, the whole church, highly esteemed, with honor and with blessing. That's the point here. Right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. A sharp, two-edged sword. Sword that distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous, and that judges the unrighteous in the end, saves the righteous in the end. This is his omnipotence, his supremacy, his sovereignty, his power. And finally, his face was shining like the sun at full strength. That is the noonday sun on the equator. At its zenith. And it represents his countenance, his brilliant, glorious countenance before us. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is a bold, compelling vision, is it not? And it's incredible here because there is so much that lies underneath, right? Right? John says it here, makes it clear to us. He says over and over again, he uses the word like. Jesus' hair is like. Jesus' eyes are like. His voice is like. It's important to pick up on that repetition because this is not what Jesus looks like, okay? This is not some perfect representation of him. This is what Jesus is like, each thing symbolic of his character his nature he doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth he doesn't he doesn't walk around with heavy heavy gold feet he doesn't no they represent something far more he's like this he's like that he's like this these are the things that it represents and they're the things that tell us about who he really is You see, when we gaze upon this glorified image, heavenly image of Jesus, we see his character in depth, up close, personal. Those words that are used in the church like sovereignty, supremacy, those, those words take on deeper meaning here. You have eyes to think, see the things that make him who he is, a glimpse into what he is at the very core of his heart, his affections, his motivations, what comes from deep within inside him. You see, you don't have to see him to behold him, right? You don't have to. In fact, seeing him would actually not give us as much as beholding his character. Our greatest need is not to see him It's to know who He is. His character, His essence, His promises. That He is true, that He is trustworthy. All His attributes, all that is represented here. His love and His grace, His wisdom and His knowledge, His power, His strength, His supremacy. Those are things we can stand on. The Bible says no one will ever see God. The Bible says when... When we do actually see God who became man, it's nothing to see. What there is to see is what he did on the cross. That represents his character, his nature. And that's what we get here in spades. Things we can stand on, things we can trust, things that really help. These are the things we need to see to know him. Vision of Jesus Christ, unveiling part two. That's what John sees. Now, now here's the second section of this passage. What does John hear? And of course, second section of this passage, it begins with the end to the first section. John responds to the vision he saw. I'm in the first part of verse 17. Falls to his feet like a dead man. John does what we all would have done even at just a glimpse of the image of Jesus Christ. Right? Not even the picture, just a glimpse. You he, he can't see Jesus, any part of him, any glimpse of his image, and not, be un, and not be unaffected, Be deeply affected by it. Our knees buckle, our legs get weak. We lose capacity. We fall on our face in the dirt at his feet. In awe, and in reverence, and in fear. And it's in that place, that act of worship, that involuntary act of complete worship, it's in that place that Jesus reaches out to John. What a picture. In that place, he puts his hand, his right hand on his Shoulder. Look at verse seventeen and following into eighteen. Fell like his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me. His touch is real. Saying, "Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, like you are. Even now, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm not dead anymore, and I have the keys. Now I hold it." to death, and to hell. You see, you and I are like dead men and women. We're dead before him. We're like John here. Until Jesus places his hand on your shoulder, until Jesus initiates in your life, we are not worthy, you and I are not worthy to, in the dirt, look at the filth on the soles of his shoes. Unless Jesus speaks to us. And he does, and it changes everything in a touch. He breathes life into dead men and women. And when we crawl to our knees and begin to hear his voice, he says to us, don't be afraid. Well, it's a little too late for that, Jesus. No, don't, Bill, don't be afraid for I was once dead, but I'm alive. The grave can't hold you. It couldn't hold me. I'm the living one. I hold the keys. You don't have to be afraid for death is not your end. Stand for you, church. You who have trusted in me, you are mine. What a statement. What a voice. Did you know that the remedy to fear, the remedy to paralyzing fear, which by the way, this doesn't just mean awe. This means like peeing in my fa- pants fear. That's what this means. This is fear, straight up fear, afraid. You know, the, the remedy to that kind of fear is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What? Think about your fears. The remedy to your fear not that they'll be fully resolved on earth. I'm not saying that the remedy to fear is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, how how is that? Well, all of our fears are future. They're, They're future oriented, right? I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid for my friends whose son is sick. I'm afraid for my own kids that they might get hurt or be in an accident. I'm afraid I might lose my job. All things future. Not afraid of the past, we've already lived it. Well, I'm afraid that my past will come back to haunt me. Well, when? In the future, it'll come back to haunt you. That's what I'm afraid of. No, fear is all looking forward. It's all future oriented, which is why Jesus' words here are so significant, so remarkable. Jesus is the only one who can say with integrity, don't be afraid. Why? Because he knows the future. That's why. He is the first and the last. He, he has risen from the grave, he has extended beyond death, and because he has, you, church, will be too. You will be raised from the grave and glorified with him in heaven. He knows that is our end. And so when we hear these words from him to us, when we actually listen to them and let them sink deep into the core of our chest, all of our other more temporary fears begin to lose their power. They begin to lose their grip their hold on our lives. I'm not saying believe this and you won't fear. I'm saying what Jesus says. And he says, when you understand my resurrection, when you understand my death and my resurrection and all that means for your future, all that it means, the things that you fear now will lose their power. Your fear today will lose its grip when you are aware of the certainty of tomorrow. And we are aware of the certainty of tomorrow because we know the one who holds the keys to tomorrow. You see, there are only two doors. There is the door of eternal death, eternal separation from God, the dead men and women that are forever dead. And there's the door to eternal life. Life that only Jesus Christ can offer. Only two doors, just two. And when we're born into this life, we are born dead. We are born headed in one direction and one direction alone. And that is to a life of eternal separation, eternal death apart from God. We are headed directly there. It's only door that's unlocked to us. The other's locked. And that door is wide open gates flung wide for all to come and all are coming going there except that Jesus decided that he would die instead except that Jesus decided that for all these dead people he would give them a chance to breathe life again except that Jesus decided to take on the penalty for our rebellion and sin, which is death, for the wages of sin are death, take on our rebellion, our sin on himself, sacrifice, pay the penalty for us, and resolve that issue. Until he does that, we are headed in one direction. And when he does that, he unlocks the other door. For all who place their hope in Him, He is the way, the truth, and the what? The life. No one gets to the Father except through Him. There is one key holder, right? And here's what's interesting about this when when the door to everlasting life is unlocked, guess what happens to the other door? It gets locked. See, there is no third door. There is no option one way or the other. Either you trust Christ and your salvation is sure for eternity, or you don't and, and you don't, right? Two doors can't be unlocked at the same time. One is locked and one is unlocked. Hillary and I were at a wedding in Texas several years ago. It was on a big ranch in, in Texas, and it was a wild wedding, actually. Um, the rain was coming down so hard and the wind was blowing so hard on this ranch, you know, flat ranch, that the rain was coming into this tent where the wedding was outside on the property, just coming in sideways. Everyone was soaked. Didn't matter which side of the tent you were on, it was just blowing in. So you can imagine bridesmaids and groomsmen coming coming down and hair going everywhere. And then the singer gets up to sing. This stuff is this stuff just happens only at weddings. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But the, setter, the singer gets up to sing, And when she gets up there, she gets going a little bit and then her voice starts faltering and then she turns green, runs behind the tent and gets sick. So now it's awkward, right? (laughs) Silence. the pastor, he gets up there. He's trying to figure out how to make this transition and he stands up there. And so he just goes ahead and begins the service with the bride and groom. He gets going four or five minutes, And the mother of the bride stands up in the tent and tells him, you're not doing this right for everybody. So now this poor pastor is staggered. I am so glad I wasn't this pastor. What what would you do? Staggered, it's crazy. Honestly, it was awesome to be in the crowd. It was awesome. That's the truth of it. Yeah, it was just incredible. Uh, But one thing happened that wasn't quite so awesome. And that was, I went up to the house uh, to use the bathroom the the, the the main house on the property that's where the bathroom was and I went up to the house and I got locked in the bathroom well how can that happen well this lock this particular lock was a two-keyed lock so the door closed it was locked it was over I guess it had been propped I, I don't know it was locked so now I've been in the bathroom I've been in the bathroom a while I'm rattling the door I'm trying to figure out how to get out I'm asking for help anybody out there Asking for help, this woman comes, but she just comes because she needs to use the bathroom. Well, how long are you going to take in there? Well, I'm locked in. Like, I'm not sure what the aroma is coming under the door, but I, I'm not just sitting right now. I'm locked in. Could you please, you know, get help or, or somebody? Well, the key holder, the, the, the guy that could unlock the door was the father of the bride. He's a bit tied up. No one wants to go talk to the father of the bride or find another key. So, So they just keep sending these men to the door and the men come and do the same thing. They rattle the door. I'm gonna take this door off its hinges. I'm trying to take the door off its hinges. I don't have anything to do it. Hinges are on the inside. I'm gonna get you out, no problem. Uh, Is it locked on your side? Everybody asks me the same question. Well, yes, it's locked on my side. That's why you're here. Yeah, it's locked. This goes on uh, about 40 minutes. Finally, someone, I'm saying this the whole time, you know, I I think I'd be fine. Just ask the father of the bride where the key is. You know, it's not going to interrupt everything. Finally, someone goes and does it. Someone goes and asks him. And a few minutes later, the father of the bride comes and unlocks the door. And I was set free from my prison of plumbing fixtures. He unlocks the door and I, I could come out. Jesus Christ holds the keys to life and death. We are locked in one direction until his death and resurrection unlocks the door. Unlocks the door to life everlasting, to life eternal, opens the door, unlocks it and opens it wide for you and me. That future is sure. I'm certain of it. So is John. And so is Jesus Christ who reveals himself to us. I want to close this way this morning. I want to close in the way that that John responds with awe and with worship. Only today, we're not going to sing our worship. We're going to pray our worship. I'm going to lead us in a prayer that just walks us simply back through the text. And I'm going to invite you to trust in these moments that the Savior Jesus Christ, wherever you are, the Savior Jesus Christ is reaching His strong right hand towards you. Join me as I pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to see you like this as you have revealed yourself to us fully, completely. Not trying to paint a picture, but trying to show us your character, your depth, that we might mine it even now. All your awesome power and glorious splendor. We want to see what's true about you. And we know your wisdom in all things, may we stand grateful for your eyes that see us, see our needs and our desires and our hopes and our aspirations and our affections and our dreams and our confusion and our hurt and our brokenness. Eyes that see us, that know us. May we see back and know you. Know your love, your care and your grace. May we know your stability, your faithfulness, your steadiness. And may we know your strength, your power to overcome, which is the theme of this whole book, these seven churches that overcome by your power alone. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you make your countenance shine upon us? Would you give us peace and rest? Allow us to marvel at the guarantee by your character, by who you are and what you've done, the guarantee of a future, a hope sure. And in the here and now, would you give us discernment to pick a college when it's time and worship you as we go? knowing that if somehow I choose the wrong college, or at least it seems to be the wrong choice, that you are still faithful, always. to you remind us constantly, in whatever poor decision we might make, in any poor career decision, that we can trust you, that you will provide, Remind us that the door to life eternal has been unlocked and you promised to get us there. So we will not starve, we will not falter. You will provide. Would you help us to remember that many of the people around us are dead, just like we were. And would you make us, as John was, bold, to tell them what you've revealed to us, to tell them what we know to be true about you in our own lives. And for whatever it is that stands right in front of us today, may we rest in the reality that we don't have to be afraid. It is but temporary and it is already beginning to lose its power. May we take heart in who you are all that you are, and all that you have done and made known to us. Lord Jesus Christ, you are enough. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.